Northern New York Community Podcast, stories from the heart of our community. Hi folks and welcome to another episode of the Northern New York Community Podcast. We're excited to have you join our conversation with Donald Whitney. Don's family has lived in the North Country since the early 1800s. His affinity for and historical knowledge of the region is vast and true. He will share some great historical stories related to Northern New York. A longtime educator and administrator, Don will also talk about his 40 years in local education. His family has been tied to philanthropy for centuries. He will offer his unique perspective about the influence of giving back. There's plenty to cover during this interview, but before we start, we have to share our gratitude with our supporters, WPBS and the Northern New York Community Foundation. They are responsible for the creation and production of these outstanding stories from the heart of our community. Be sure to check out what both organizations are doing these days. Head to www.wpbstv.org and www.nnycf.org to learn more about both agencies. Now let's get started with our conversation with Don Whitney. Don, thanks so much for coming on the podcast. Thank you for offering. Your family settled in the North Country more than two centuries ago. That's a long time ago. Um, the area has changed immensely, certainly in that time. Your family played a vital role in some of the key wars of the 19th century, including a battle many forget, the Battle of Big Sandy. Can you share with us that important historical story and your family's involvement here to open? Well, my sixth generation great-grandfather, Erastus Whitney, was uh, in the militia, the Henderson militia at the time. He not only was at the Battle of Big Sandy, but he was the bait. He was the guy, the guy that got the British out of the boats to chase him. <laughs> he actually didn't fight it, he just ran. Uh, <laughs> so it's a great story. But he was at the Battle of Big Sandy, and certainly he was involved with the cable carry, mm -hmm. carrying the cable from uh, Big Sandy to Sackett's Harbor, the two-day uh, two carry that you know changed the whole outlook of the war. Can you share some details about the cable carry too and just its significance? Well, the, the material that carry was not only carried in the cable carry, well, some of it was brought by ox cart, but the cable itself was a, a six-ton cable that was 21 inches around and uh, uh, over 100 men carried it. And each man was carrying over 100 pounds. And they carried it 20 miles from Big Sandy to Sackett's Harbor. It was necessary to keep it in one cable because they needed it for the mast and for the uh, anchor rope of the Superior. Once the Superior was afloat, then we now had, for the first time in the war, we had control of the lake. We had the biggest battleship on the lake. So th throughout the war, we had never controlled Lake Ontario. And whoever controlled the lake pretty much controlled the northern tier of the war. How did that tip the scales at that time? Because once the ship was, was loaded with its cannon and its cable, the British broke the blockade and took off for Kingston. Their ships got out of there because they knew coming out of Sackett's was going to be the biggest, meanest battleship that ever was made. Your knowledge of history is just so vast, as we mentioned at the top. If you could share one other unique, little known fact about the region's history or one that you find that's really um, exciting or cool to know, is there one in particular you could share? No, I, I just think that people were very resilient people to, to come to such a, a cold climate, a climate that was so different from where they lived before, and to come in and do the things they did. The early settlers were, were, were really successful in what they did, and yet they were the first ones to do it. They had no model. You know, they brought with them all the tools. We didn't have any way of, uh, we didn't have the railroad until 1851, and these people had to come across lots or by water, and that's a tough way to get here. Where did your love for history originate? I'm not sure. I had family that loved history. I had a couple of great aunts that when I was growing up would tell stories 
family stories, and I, I guess that's where I got it from. I just love to hear them tell the stories about, they were actually their grandfathers, my great-great-grandfathers would be their fathers and grandfathers that actually were the ones that did these deeds. So they had direct knowledge, they had first-hand knowledge of this. Are there any artifacts, um, you know, pieces of history that you have at your home that kind of reflect some of those previous eras of, of local history? No, I've got a lot of artifacts, but I'm not sure, you know, which ones reflect what, you know. <laughs> you know, I got a lot of artifacts of the, of, of the times. Uh, industry, not necessarily family, but milk bottles and those things, you know, the early days. Uh, um, early guns, just a lot of material that was collected over the time. Uh, my dad was in, when he was in World War II, he brought back a lot of artifacts from the war too. So <clears throat> it's nice to have those. Let's continue with your mom and dad. Uh, mother was an educator, a teacher, elementary and Sunday school, correct? And Sunday school and secondary teacher. And secondary. She was both. Um, your father ran a family business that is Whitney Sales and Service, correct? In right. Adams? Yes. What did you learn most from your parents at a young age and as you became older? Well, they were hard workers. Uh, they believed that uh, you got out of life just what you put into it. So they they gave a lot to it, and, and they certainly got a lot out of it. You decided to pursue a career in education yourself. Uh, graduating from Adams Center, Adams Central School, I wanted to make sure I got that right, and SUNY Potsdam. Adams Center, Adams Central. Correct. Right. <laughs> right. And, and SUNY Potsdam right. for college as well. Yes. Yep. Uh, but you always helped with the family business. Why was that important to you? It, it was just something like father, like son. You know, you, you just wanted to be like your dad, and, and, and it was something I grew up with, so you just kept doing it. And the service industry, the business, offered a lot. I mean, there were a lot of jobs that your father and the family certainly helped with, and not just in Southern Jefferson County, you guys were all over the place. Right, but, but I think the, the thing about the business, because of the North Country, you had to be more than just one thing. Mm -hmm. So we were plumbers, electricians, uh, we sold appliances, we sold furnaces, we sold water heaters. So there was always something for business all the time. So if one area was slower than another, something always carried it. Where did you find time to help with the family business as you were becoming you know, an aspiring educator or began working as a teacher? Well, my father-in-law was also a farmer and we also had a farm. So, so, so it, 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 it was just, it, the time was there. You just had to uh, be careful how you used your time. You know. Was there a particular job that you enjoyed the most? I know from personal experience, you fixed my parents' washing machine yes, many years ago. Yeah. I, I love the service work. You, you know, the nice thing about deliveries and service work was you, was you get a chance to go in everybody's home and you get to meet a lot of people, a lot of great people, a lot of people that you wouldn't have met otherwise had you not been in that business. So you got a chance to see everybody as they were in their own home. So, no, no, you know, nothing was, was put on. It was the way they were. It's the way they lived. And that, that's a great part of the business. What did you learn about this area um, by going to some of these homes and working on some of these jobs? I think you learned how hard the area people worked, how honest they are, um, how much they cared about the area. I think there's a lot of positive in here, really that people don't realize sometimes. You hear, you hear a lot of criticism, you know, I'd like to move south, I'd love to move here or there. And I, I, just, I just couldn't be happier where I live right now. I have no other choice to live but right here in the North Country. Since your mother was a teacher, as you said, pretty much at all levels, um, what lessons did you take from her approach and methods as an educator? Well, my, my mother always believed that you listen very carefully to all teachers when they spoke. She said, just don't listen to the, being a male, don't just listen to the males, but listen to the female teachers too. Take all, all opinions and think them out thoroughly before you make your decision. So my mother was very good about doing that. She said, you know, make sure you listen to both sides of the story. That was important. Did you ever talk shop with your mother about 
you know, again, not approaches and methods only, but just here's a scenario that I have at school. Absolutely. We talked about it all the time. And, and my daughters are educators, and we talk about it all the time. So, <laughs> so it's one thing that never leaves you. You know, once you're there, you're always there. Is there a common thread or, you know, message that's always underlying based on any of the feedback you share either with your daughters or that you remember from your mom? Be enthusiastic about it. Embrace change. When I first started, I didn't like change. And as I got older, I liked change more and more. And as I embraced it, everything turned out better. So what the other thing is, you know, look at new ideas that come in. Embrace those ideas. Look at those ideas. Make sure you don't put them down. From a reading teacher, to an administrator, you have said that being a building principal was the best job in the school. Well, being a reading teacher was a great job, but being a building administrator was the best job. Why is that? It just, it's just that you, you have a chance to meet all people at their best. You really do. You get to see all, all areas of the school. You get to see all pieces of it, whether it's transportation, whether it's uh, um, enrollment, uh, whether it's discipline. You get to see all pieces of it. And that's nice to be able to see the whole picture. So you're not missing pieces of it. And that's, that's, that's the exciting part, because every day was a different challenge. And those challenges were fun. Mm -hmm. Now there's a great debate, I feel like it's a debate for all eras it seems, among people and likely some of the teaching profession, certainly parents, about how children have changed over the years. Now education certainly continues to evolve over time, but after 40 years in the profession, what do you think has changed, if anything? I thought it got better, I want to tell you. <laughs> Discipline, especially the boys, were kinder, gentler when I left than when I started. When I started in the 60s, I think they were tougher. When I left, I found a kinder, gentler group of boys. I'm not sure what the reason is, uh, maybe the different rules, sexual harassment rules or whatever, but I found a kinder, gentler group of kids than I had started with. And yet that's not what you hear from the general public. You hear about how bad it is today. That's not true. I'm telling you, if go out there and try it. It's a great place to be. Are the values and principles of philanthropy integrated enough into a child's education today? Well, that's always, always debatable. You never can do enough for it. I think that's something that we always have to be mindful of. That's something we always have to, you know, hold that piece there. Where do we put it? Do we put it in social studies? Do we put it in philosophy? Do we put it in English? Where do we put it? I think all areas actually have to have it. Are there any experiences that you recall either as a teacher or administrator where you know, projects that students had worked on that were just really good examples of giving back to a community that you felt were real highlights or maybe uh, that you enjoyed the most. I think the school has uh, done a lot with kids. I can remember, that this may sound terrible, I remember a kindergarten teacher that wanted to take, this was a very poor school as principal, uh, wanted to take her class to the mall to see Santa Claus and also buy a gift for the, is it the sharing tree? Sure, yeah. And somebody said, well, geez, these kids are poor. And somebody said, and I love the answer, but it's good that all kids learn to share, whether they're rich or poor. I just loved it. And on they went. It was approved by the board. And on they went every year. They went to Salmon Run Mall. And the kids got a chance to, poor kids got a chance to help buy a gift for the tree. That's a terrific lesson. I thought that was, a, I, I thought that was wonderful. I just thought that was a great experience. And I love the answer that everybody has to share, whether you're rich or poor. Where did your values of philanthropy and giving back come from? Came from the community, but especially from my parents. I think my parents were very big givers, especially my mother. Very, very, always talked about giving. She, she always, that was one of her main themes, was always about sharing. Are there any examples that you recall either at a young age or as you 
you know, became a young adult and older. Well, I remember Sunday school when we were very young. We always had a fund where we gave money to the uh, extra money to the to the kids and families of foreign countries that weren't as well off as we were. We always felt good about that. And we're little kids, five, six, seven years old, you know. So it was a good feeling to do it. And also, they had local food drives at that time for people in the community that could really benefit from that. So that was always fun to do that. Always fun to be part of the food drive. You get to play a special role in being a difference maker to many communities, uh, serving as the president of the Daisy Marquis Jones Foundation, which is based in Rochester. But you work with a committee and family members to determine grants each year to worthy projects and programs that are addressing important needs. Can you share the story about how the Daisy Marquis Jones Foundation was established? Well, my great aunt and my great grandmother were very frugal investors. They uh, lived on a side street in Rochester right off Monroe Avenue, and they lived the life of like the millionaire next door. They lived in a two-story, $150,000 home, and no one would have known it. But they believed in giving back, and that was the nice thing about it. So when they had the opportunity, and they certainly had the finances, they decided that's where they wanted their wealth to go. Can you share a little bit about the experiences and you know examples of some of the projects that Daisy Markey Jones Foundation has supported well, recently? You know, we, we our our biggest thrust is certainly in in working with youth and working with the elderly. So we get both ends of the spectrum, but we do a lot in the middle too. We don't like to pick a particular program because it looks like that's the one we favor over another. So I'm very careful not to say this is one area that we like better than another. But we do a lot with, with the disadvantaged youth, and we do a lot with the elderly. So you get both ends of the spectrum there. And that's a great, you know, that's a great place to be. Kind of that multi-generational impact yes. in a lot of ways. Yes, yep. and, that, and that changes too, and that evolves over time. So as history goes on, as time goes on, you evolve too in your foundation. Where we used to give a lot of large grants, now we give more smaller grants. So how do you evaluate that as far as determining which ones, which projects you feel are, are really important and, and again, hit the mission really of the foundation? Here's the difficult, here's the difficult part. 99.9% .9 of the people that walk through my door, because we, we deal with nonprofits, 99.9% .9 of those people really care about what they do. And the reason that I give to some and not others is just because I only have a limited amount of finances. If I had more money, those hundred I turned down, I would actually give to. So it's, so it's hard to pick and choose. It is. We look at the mission, but we also have to look at the need. Because needs change. Needs change immediately in the area. And Rochester is, very, is, is a very giving area. It is. To piggyback off that about needs, given your lifelong residency here and watching the needs evolve here in the North Country, what do you see that really stands out as, as key community needs for this area? That's a hard one to pick and, and, and certainly to say because again, if you say one over the other, it looks like you favor one over the other. And you, don't, you certainly don't want to hurt anybody's feelings because there are a number of people that are out there giving to different projects, different causes, not only in money, but in, 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 in product and volunteering. So it's very difficult to say that. But what I will say is that the more we give, the better it is for everyone. Everyone will, all things will improve because of the giving that we give in all areas. How has serving on the foundation changed your view of philanthropy? Has it changed your view? I don't know if it's changed it. It does, it does change from, from year to year in how I look at different projects and programs that are out there. Well, I don't think it's really changed it. I don't think it's had, 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 had any change at all. Why is philanthropy so important to this region's future, the North Country? It's so important because it, it creates a culture. It creates a culture that the more we give, the better it is for everyone. 
So that's, that's very, very important. Where do you think we stand with that culture today? We can always do more. We're never, we never exceed our reach in that one. We always can do more. I think that's what we have to remember that. Never is enough. We need to do more. Students obviously are you know, the area, the demographic you worked with very closely, again as an educator and administrator. If you had a chance to impart a message to a group of elementary school students or say middle school students, what would you kind of share as that just key message about why philanthropy is important in this area? Well, philanthropy is important because it helps everyone in the area. Everyone benefits, those giving and those receiving. So it's a win-win for everybody. So it's very, very important. And it's very important that we involve this youth, too. Do you have any thoughts on how we get youth more involved Absolutely. in philanthropy? First of all, we model for the youth. This is what we do. This is what works for the community. Then we get them involved. We get them involved by saying, join us. And then celebrate and recognize those things the youth have done. We have to remember that. In order to get these kids to participate, we need to recognize their good deeds. There's nothing wrong with it. As we start to wrap up, thinking about all that your family has done and the legacy of the, the Whitney name um, in the North Country, um, if somebody asks, how do you want to be remembered? Not just Don Whitney, but the Whitney family. How would you hope that the, the family's remembered given their years of, of support and giving back to this community? I remember my mother saying, probably the best way to look at it, um, she said, I don't want any monuments or statues. All I want to do is just continue to help the community grow. So, you know, it isn't anything that I really want out there in, 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 in any kind of letters or form. I just want to, I, I, I had my opportunity to have what I have, and I want the opportunity to give back. That's, that's all I wanted to do. I don't want any, any, any name or any plaques or anything else out there. I just want to have the chance that in my lifetime I had a chance to give back. Well, we hope that your story, your wealth of knowledge, the example that you have set is certainly one that we hope the younger generation aspires to be and looks at and says this, this is a, a person, a family that did it the right way that wanted to enhance the quality of life in the North Country and make it better and hopefully they'll continue to do that. Don, your, your knowledge and insights greatly appreciated. You've done so much to make this North Country vibrant and strong. Continued success with the local business, which I'm sure you're still helping with, correct? Oh, yeah. <laughs> to some degree. <laughs> um, the critical work certainly with the Daisy Marquis Jones Foundation and much more. And we're fortunate to have you inspiring so many others to do better in our area. Thanks for being part of the podcast today. Thank you. That wraps up another Northern New York Community Podcast. Remember, every interview is easily accessible and always free whether it's online or on your mobile device. Find us on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, or other podcast platforms when you search for the Northern New York Community Podcast. Check out our podcast website, which also features interview highlights, transcripts, photo galleries, and much more. Just go to www.nnycpodcast.com. Our thanks again to Don Whitney for joining us, and thanks to all of you for listening to the Northern New York Community Podcast. Northern New York Community Podcasts, stories from the heart of our community.